the last time that I was here was back in September whenever uh, y'all were um, either just starting or just finishing up doing the Lottie Moon offering, or excuse me, the uh, Dixie Jackson offering, and here I am whenever y'all are wrapping up the Lottie Moon. Um, so hey, this is a perfect time. Uh, my name is Lee Woodmancy. I'm the campus minister at the BCM at UA Fort Smith, which means I am a, uh, an employee of the Southern Baptist Convention's uh, wing here in Arkansas for the state convention. Um, and so I am intimately connected with the things that we do as Southern Baptists. And let me say, the last song that we just sang, Go Tell It on the Mountain, that is a fitting song that leads into what we were talking about today, and it leads into what you have been doing with Lottie Moon, right? And I'm sure Philip has already told you um, who Lottie Moon is, but if you didn't know, she spent 40 years as a missionary in China um, for Southern Baptists, and she is an example uh, as a woman who was literally like four foot nine, like she was a tiny woman, um, and she was a bit of a firecracker, and she spent 40 years on the mission field in China. And I got to say that um, the Lottie Moon offering affects my students. I have no less than four students who are right now full-time missionaries in China. The money that is raised through the Lottie Moon offering goes directly to the International Mission Board, goes directly to um, our foreign missionaries, and so this is important stuff, and a lot of this is tied in together um, just as the efforts of the Southern Baptist Convention, efforts as, uh, here at the local level um, with the Buckner Association here um, in Mansfield and beyond, um, in Arkansas, in the U.S., and like I said, beyond. So um, it's my privilege to be here. Uh, whenever Philip called and asked if I would be able to preach, I jumped at the opportunity um, because last time I was here was just to flap my gums about saying thank you for supporting us at the BCM. Now I get to actually talk about stuff that is far more important, the Word of God. So um, before we get to that point, I want to I tell you a little bit about me. Um, I think I shared a little bit last time I was here. Um, I've got three daughters. Um, they are five, three, and two. Pray for me. Um, they are a handful. My wife has been out of town for the last three or four days, so I've been flying solo with them. Um, there's only been one bloody nose, and I didn't give it, so... You know, that's, that's, that's the beauty of it. Um, I was in the military for just under nine years, um, so I served in the Arkansas National Guard uh, for just under nine years. I spent a couple of years in Baghdad, um, so I've kind of been here, there, and yonder, but one of the things I want to tell you about was my experience of being in the military, um, especially with training, basic training, AIT, your, your training you do whenever you're first learning how to do your job. Um, there's something that's really simple about the military. Right. How many of y'all have served in the military before? Okay, um, So this is going to ring true for you. I need to make a distinction between simple and easy. A lot of the stuff you do is not easy at all, but it's simple, right? There's a clear standard, a clear point of reference. Be here at this time with this uniform and with this stuff and do what you're supposed to do. A lot of times that's it. Right? That's what you need to do, right? I even carry that over to my students at the university, and I tell them, do you want to pass college? Do you want to get a degree? Do you want to pass this class? Do you want to do well? Give your instructor what they ask for, when they ask for it, and I guarantee you, you'll pass that class. That's simple. It ain't easy, right? I've got some, you know, fifth and sixth year seniors who are engineering students who are sitting there saying, yeah, you're right. It ain't easy, but it is simple. And one of the things that really sticks out to me is that um, as simple as that is, I still mess that up, right? Being at the right place at the right time with the right stuff to do the right thing um, wasn't easy. 
And what would happen a lot of times whenever you were uh, going through training, whether it was your drill instructor or some other instructor or somebody else, um, in varying degrees of political correctness, right, they would ask you, what did you do, right? Why did you fail to meet the standard? Why did you not do what you were supposed to do? And, and as demeaning as that can be, more times than not, it really wasn't, right? Really what that was was an opportunity for that instructor to say, what were you supposed to do and then what actually happened, Right? They want you to contemplate, they want you to reflect, they want you to think about what you did. And one of the things that I did, um, word of caution here, maybe not the best thing, but this is what I did, is I started adopting the language that they used, and when they would ask, hey, why did you fail to meet the standard, I would basically mimic back, I failed to meet the standard, which is not helpful, right? It doesn't actually accomplish what it is they're asking for, right? It doesn't actually make me reflect on what I failed to do. It just says, again, that I didn't do it. As, as much as that is, you know, instructive for us, I feel like there's more to it than that as well. Um, whenever an instructor was doing that, whether it was a drill instructor or someone who was teaching you a class, uh, they always had a clear point of reference. They always had a clear standard. And they would point back to it and say, did you do that? No? Well, then you failed. You failed to meet the standard. But what was really important was that they never just told you the standard. They told you the goal. There's an objective. There's a reason for doing it. There was something that was meant to come out of it as well. Today, this morning, what we're going to be looking at is a text from Matthew chapter 5 that clearly articulates Jesus' frame of reference, his point of reference, his standard, and then also his goal for us is something that's very clear that's laid out here. So if you would, turn with, Matthew chapter, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 20. And we're really going to be focusing on verses 17 and verses 20. Um, but we're going to read all of that together. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, this is what Matthew writes for us. This is Jesus speaking. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For I truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Four verses. And we're really going to be focusing on two of these. Jesus' point of reference for his own life, the scriptures, the law and the prophets, and his goal for us, perfection. That's what we're talking about this morning. Join me as we pray over this morning and everything that's going to be said. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that I even have an opportunity to be able to preach your word. I thank you for the opportunity that has been given to me from this church to be able to talk about how great you are and how little I am. Father, I pray that whatever is said today would be in harmony with your gospel, would be in harmony with your word, and God, that you would make much of it. Not much of me, but much of your word and much of your son. And also, I would ask you that as we're sitting here, would you pray also for me individually that what I say would be beneficial, would be helpful, would be edifying for you. Pray that for me if you would.
Father, we give you these moments knowing that you can do more with them than I ever could. Make much of yourself, make much of your son. Send us your spirit so that we might understand truly what it is that is being said. And God, I pray that all the glory would be given to you through your son and empowered by your Holy Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so one of the reasons that I really wanted to focus on Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20 is because, like I said, it gives Jesus his clear frame of reference, his standard, and then also his goal for us. Um, but I think it's a fitting time for us, right? Because we're coming up on New Year's. We're coming up on that, uh, that weird time of the year where we kind of do some goofy things, right? I don't know if you've ever really thought about New Year's traditions and like why we do what we do, but some of it's just kind of weird. Like, why do we eat certain foods? Why do we stay up until midnight to watch a ball that falls from the sky? Like, that seems weird to me. I remember whenever I, the first time my parents allowed me to stay up to watch the ball drop at, uh, in New York and Times Square, I was so disappointed, right? Because when I hear there's this massive ball that's going to drop, I'm thinking, like, it's going to free fall and, like, land on the ground and, like, explode, and then they're like, okay, they start counting down 10, 9, and the thing is dropping. And I'm like, is this it? Like, this is really it? And then when it gets down to zero, like, it's now technically the new year, but the ball is still falling. Like, it wasn't even timed correctly. And I was like, ah, man, such a disappointment, right? There's a lot of things that we do at this time of year that seem kind of odd, um, and some of them are very beneficial, right? One of the main things that we do a lot of times is that we, uh, we start making resolutions for the next year. We reflect on the last 12 months, say, I did this well, I didn't do this well, I want to do better at these things, and then I say, for the next 12 months, I'm going to do those better. But here's something that I would submit to you, and this is in a personal confession. This is one that I think if you think about it for a moment, you'll arrive at the same point. Our resolutions are kind of weak. They typically don't go far enough, right? It's about improvement. It's about betterment, right? And there's something to be said about that, right? Whenever it comes to our personal sanctification, for those of us who are in Christ, like, it is not something that you just arrive at being completely sanctified. Like, you progress there. Yes, absolutely, I understand that. However, what I would submit is that the goals that we set for ourselves in the grand scheme of things fall way short of God's standard for us. They really do. And what I've already kind of hinted at, and something that we're really going to look at here in a bit, is that God, his standard is what we should be striving for, and his standard is not betterment. God's standard is not improvement. God's standard is perfection. That is going to be very clear from the text that we talk about today and the other ones that we look at. God's standard is absolutely perfection. God ultimately never lets sin go unpunished. He never has, and he never will. So let me just kind of take a slight detour here, and let's lay some groundwork here. If you look at Leviticus chapter 19, verses 2 and 3, and this is a verse that's quoted later on in the New Testament, this is what Moses was told. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and you say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, I am holy. Holiness is not Betterment or improvement it is perfection. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, Peter issues three commands. The first one is, set your hope fully on the graces that be revealed to you at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third one is to conduct yourselves with fear and trembling in the time of your exile. But the second one is, quoting from Leviticus 19, he says, be holy. 
for the Lord your God is holy. It's not improvement. That's not betterment. That's the standard. And that standard is holiness, perfection, being set apart completely. Matthew 5.48, if you just kind of look to the end of this chapter, right before you get to chapter 6, this is what Jesus says. After he lays out these six different areas, and he talks about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, the way that they understood uh, the text then, you have heard it said, but I say to you, when he concludes all of that, in chapter 5, verse 48, he says this, you therefore must be perfect. Not better, not having been improved, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard is not improvement. The standard is not betterment. The standard is perfection. And that's rough. Because at the end of the day, what Jesus is doing, all he's doing is just walking in the fullness of what God's already expected of his people. Jesus just actually does it, right? Now, the the problem for us is that we look at that and we say, well, I can't be holy. I can't be perfect. And let me say this as clearly as I can. That does not change the standard. Just because you can't meet it doesn't mean God's going to then give you a pass because you couldn't do it. The standard does not change. The frame of reference does not change. Perfection is demanded. But here's the kicker, and this is the thing that we've got to square with everything that we're going to read today with basically the entire scriptures is what God demands he provides. That's where we have to see where those two things, where we see that tension of not being able to um, fully live out perfectly what it is that God has told us that we are expected to do and God not changing that, (laughs) the tension there. But the resolution is, thank God that we don't have to be the ones to do it because that's what Jesus does for us. Let's look at verse 17 a little more closely, and then uh, we'll wrap all this up. We're going to spend most of our time in 17 and 20. So this is uh, what Matthew records in chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And this is where that tension we can feel like, okay, if God demands perfection, then, then I can see some resolution starting to begin with Jesus, but how exactly does that happen? Before we get there, let me, let me lay this out for you. One of the most frequent questions that I get on the college campus is why, right? Oddly enough, that's also the most frequent question I get from my five- and three-year-old. Um, and the reason for that is that's a good question. Right? Like, that actually is a good question. You can ask it in a whole lot of bad ways, but it's a good question because, especially when the things that I'm talking about is whenever I'm teaching and I'm telling students this is the way that life is meant to be lived, this is the best way to live life, their natural question is, why? Why do you say that? And that question is highly philosophical, very... uh, very much centered around this moral idea of why I say this, but at the end of the day, it's a convictional question. If you don't believe that there's a reason for you to be doing this, then why are you teaching someone else to do it? And let me say this. That question must be answered adequately. Must be. If it is not answered adequately, that person will not in any way put stock in what I've said. Or, better yet, won't put any stock in believing what I believe or why I believe it. I haven't answered their why question. This doesn't mean that if you don't have the most you know, robust and eloquent 
response and an apologetic conversation that that person's never going to believe Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is in that moment, they're not going to be led to the conviction that I have. If I can't answer that why, none of this matters. So we come to God demands perfection. Well, Jesus says, I can give that to you. But why? How does that happen? What exactly is going on here? If you look there in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. When Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, what he's really talking about there is the, the whole Old Testament, right? I mean, I think we understand that. Um, Jews in the first century, they didn't think of the Old Testament the same way we do. We think of the Old Testament as, you know, the Pentateuch, first five books. Then we think about the history books. And we talk about the wisdom literature, you know, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Psalm, and that kind of jazz. Then we think about the major prophets, and then you got the minor prophets that no one can actually name, right? You know what I'm talking about? That's not how Jews in the first century thought about the Old Testament. That's not how Jesus, as a first century Jew, thought about the Old Testament. They would think about the Old Testament as the law, those first five books of the Bible, Moses, his story, the giving of the covenant, and then the prophets, which is pretty much everything else. You might at times see them talk about the writings, and the writings there are essentially just the wisdom literature, but everything else is the law and the prophets. So when Jesus talks about the law and the prophets being fulfilled, he's talking about the Old Testament, but this is key. He's not just talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, the very requirements that God gave to his people and said, if you're going to be in relationship to me, this is what you will do, and this is what I will do. When Jesus says the law and the prophets are going to not be abandoned, they're going to be fulfilled, that's key. Because it's not just this list of prophecies. It's not Zechariah 9.9 that there's going to be this virgin that gives birth to a baby and that dude eventually is going to ride into some town on a donkey. Man, that, that simplifies the Old Covenant to a list of things that were predicted and that just so happened to come about. The Old Covenant has demands. The Old Covenant has these requirements, has these standards, these frames of reference that do not change. And what Jesus says is, I'm not abandoning that. I'm going to fulfill it because what we've already said in Leviticus 19, 2 and 3 is the standard is perfection. You can't do it? Fine. I'll do it. I'll fulfill it. I'm not going to do away with it. I'm not changing the standard. I'm going to complete it. I'm going to bring it to its fullness. So let me just take one quick detour before we dive into where this really matters. Like, we need to answer the question of how is it that Jesus accomplishes this feat of fulfilling the old covenant, right? And I think there's a whole list of ways we can talk about this, but let me give you three real quick. One, Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life, the very life that is demanded by Leviticus 19. Right? We see this in Hebrews chapter 4 and 5, that Jesus in every way was like us, except he was without sin, never sinned. He fulfills the old covenant that way. Jesus was completely and perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. Not delayed obedience, not half obedience, and not disobedience, clearly, but complete obedience to the will of the Father. Everything that was asked of him, everything that was told that he was going to do and that he should do, he did perfectly. And then the third one that I think is one of the, the biggest ones that a lot of times we just miss is that Jesus himself demonstrates the very heart of God by loving 
and forgiving. Let's be very clear. He doesn't just love and forgive the people who are lovely and easy to forgive. He loves and forgives the very people who killed him. You are never more like Jesus than when you are forgiving someone. So how does Jesus accomplish and fulfill the old covenant? He's sinless, he's perfectly obedient, and he loves and forgives. Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect, teleos in Greek, it means the end or the culmination, the completion, the goal, the final thing, but it also means perfect. You must be the very thing that God has already asked you to be, right? The Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, right? It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You are to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, Jesus refers to that, and he says, you can sum up all of the law and prophets in this. Love the Lord your God with everything you have, Deuteronomy 6.4, Leviticus 19. And he said, there's a second thing. You love everyone else the same way as best you can. That's the standard. It hasn't changed. So Jesus, by being perfectly sinless, by being perfectly obedient, and by loving and forgiving perfectly, he completes it. So now we come to, what does that mean for me? So what if Jesus has completed, has finalized, and not abandoned, but fulfilled the old covenant? What does that mean for me? I'm going to give you three quick things, and we're going to talk about that real briefly, and then we're going to come to an end, because it's going to come crashing through into our life. The three things I want you to see is that Jesus accomplished is one, he purchased freedom from sin. Praise God for that. He purchased for us freedom from the sacrificial system, the ceremonial law, and the dietary restrictions that go along with the Old Covenant. We'll talk about that in a second. And in some ways, most importantly, he provides for us to have intimate relationship with the Father, something that no one in the Old Testament has the way we do today. So let's look at those briefly. One, that Jesus has, in fact, um, purchased our freedom from sin. Let me say this real clearly. You are never going to be perfectly free from the power of sin because you have a sin nature indwelling you. Can't escape that, right? That's what Paul, that's what John, that's what Jesus, that's what uh, Peter talk about, the flesh, right? This body, this sarks is the word that they use. This flesh that's bent towards not following Jesus, is bent towards not living the way God told us to live. Can't escape that. You'll finally escape it whenever you are dead, right, and that flesh is now dead, and that you are given a new body that has not been stained and tainted by that sin, but in the meantime, you're not going to be completely free from that, but what you are absolutely given, in some ways, total freedom for them, is the power of sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. You don't have to do what, sl- what sin bends you to doing what your nature says you ought to do. Jesus has come and made another option for us. And all you have to do is just follow him. He's purchased our freedom from sin. And let me say this. It also means that you don't have to clean up your life so that God will love you. I don't have to work towards not being such a dirtbag so that God will think I'm good. God already thinks I'm worth dying for because he's already sent his son to demonstrate that. He's already done it. So that tells me I don't have to work on cleaning my life up so that God will love me. He already loves me. 
And that's where we come back to this resolution making at the end of the year. You don't have to make a good resolution and actually follow through with it for God to love you. He already loves you. And there's a place called Golgotha that was demonstrated pretty clearly. Right? He has purchased our freedom from sin, but he has also purchased for us a freedom of worship that is free from the sacrificial system, that is free from the ceremonial law, and is free from dietary restrictions. And I'm not talking about the fact you can have ham and bacon, which is great. But I'm talking about you don't have to worry about literally what kind of clothes you wear. When's the last time you took a bath? Because, frankly speaking, that's in the Old Covenant. If you had done certain things, you had to go change your clothes, take a bath, clean out stuff from your house, and then you can go worship God. Man, I'm sure some of y'all didn't shower before you came here this morning, right? Praise God, right, that I can come in here and I can worship God. There is a freedom of worship that comes with what Jesus has given to us freely. It's not pigeonholed into this set of restrictions in a certain place in a certain time. I can worship freely. Praise God for that. But that means nothing if I have nothing to energize that worship. And that's where our relationship with the Father comes in. In uh, John 16, 7, one of the greatest things that Jesus says, I think still blows my mind to this day, is he's having this conversation with his disciples in the upper room. This is the last big conversation he's having with his boys before he goes uh, to the cross. And this is what he says. <clears throat> I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I, Jesus, go away. It is to your advantage. It is better that I leave because, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But as it is, if I leave, I will send him. Wrap your head around this. Jesus himself tells his disciples, it's better for me to not be here because something better is coming. I have students who will tell me, you know, something to the effect, like, man, I just feel like if God showed me a sign, you know, if like Jesus himself told me, I need you to do this, I'd have no hesitation in doing it. And I don't believe him. Don't believe him. Because Jesus himself says, no, I've already given you something better. It is better for me to have God himself indwelling me, living with me in perpetuity, right? Not for a period, not for a time frame, but indwelling me now than to have Jesus who eventually will depart. He'll come back, yes, but he will leave. It is better. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, until this, he is this glorious down payment, this this guarantee of this inheritance that you cannot fathom and you're sealed with him always. It is better that I go because if I don't, he can't come. And what that means for us is I have access to God the Father right now. I don't have to work at gaining his attention by my good work. I already have him within me. And if that's not good news, I don't know what is especially whenever we're trying to clean our lives up and improve them and make them a little bit better for the new year, let me just tell you and reassure you, God's already there. You don't have to work at getting his attention. He's there already with you if you believe in Jesus. That word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. If you believe those things, you already have the Holy Spirit with you. So what Jesus is talking about in verse 17, the Old Testament, really the Old Covenant, is he has fulfilled it, not abandoned it, 
and he's ushering you in something new. Something new and something better. I want to read this real quick. This is in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, and this is what he says there. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is far better. It is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant which he has made and mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, faultless, there would have not been a need for a second one to come. Jesus himself is the final word about the old covenant. He's the very word of God, yes, but he is the final word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says that long ago and at many times in many ways, the Father spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but now in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son. He's the final word that seals the old covenant up, and he gives us something new. But let's be very clear. The terms of the new covenant still demand perfection. Still demand perfection. Let me illustrate that real quickly. If you look in verses 18 and 19, just real quickly, what it says there is, Truly I say to you that until heaven and earth pass away, not at one iota, one dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to skip over anything. We're going to handle every bit of it. Verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let me say this. That can be a little confusing, but let me just truncate every bit of it too much for us, right? Jesus is not coming up with a ranking system in heaven. He's not saying, well, you didn't do these commandments, but you did these, and you taught others to do them, but you didn't teach them to do these other ones, so you get fifth place. That's not what Jesus is coming up with here. What he's actually saying is there are those who will be in the kingdom and those who will not. Because what's clear from verse 20 is that there is a greater righteousness that is demanded of us. And no matter what it is that we would say, what that greater righteousness is, I'm willing to bet not a single one of us would say that greater righteousness also allows for us to not do what Jesus said. It doesn't say you can be greater in your righteousness But I'm also saying you can fail at doing the very things I've told you to do. So what Jesus is really saying is, there are some who will be in heaven and some who will not. And they all come down to those who are perfect. It all comes down to verse 20. So let's look at that real quick. Verse 20 says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'm locked out at that very moment because I am a dirtbag <laughs> under my own ability. I'm a dirtbag. And I mean that in a humorous way, but also like literally you do know what Adam was made out of, right? Some dirt. <sighs> That's what I am. God remembers our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. I'm a dirtbag. I can't manufacture that righteousness. I can't conjure that up from my own ability Need I even look at the last week with my wife not home and me with three little girls? Let me tell you all this. I, if you would have asked me five years ago, um, was I like an even-tempered dude? Did I have a temper? I would clearly say, no, man, I don't have a temper. I never fly off the handle. I'm like the most even-killed dude you know. I believed that until I had kids, right? I never realized how short a fuse I had until I had children, right? Now, it doesn't mean I like fly off the handle or whatever, But it does mean that I didn't realize I need to work on that. Had I 
had I just looked at this last week and how short a fuse I had and how, how I would discipline my children that, frankly, in times were not the way that God disciplines me, which is what I'm called to do in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 and from uh, Colossians chapter 3 and 4. I'm called to raise my children up in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord the way that he disciplines me. I'm supposed to do that to my children. I didn't do that. I've already failed. I can't conjure that righteousness. I can't conjure that ability. New Year's doesn't change that, right? The fact that it goes from December 31st to January 1st doesn't then imbue me with some greater ability to be better, right? We get that, yeah, hopefully. Standard doesn't change. Greater righteousness is required. And had it been just that, I'm hosed. But praise God for verse 17 because Jesus didn't come to do away with that and change the standard. No, he came to fulfill it and give us something better. Better promises is what Hebrews says. That righteousness is beyond what mere mortals can conjure. That's why he reaches for the guys that are like the most holy dudes they knew, the scribes and the Pharisees, which, by the way, he's going to spend the next two chapters and basically the rest of Mark or excuse me, the rest of Matthew, saying, yeah, but their righteousness is kind of garbage anyway, right? He says, those guys, those holy dudes you know, you've got to be better than them. And the point that he's making is, you can't do it. What we need is a righteousness that is alien from us. It is outside of us, and it's given to us. And that's where we come back to, how exactly did Jesus accomplish complete Fulfill the old covenant. First and foremost, he was sinless. He was perfectly obedient. And he loves and he forgives. And he loves and forgives you. And when he does, he gives us righteousness. When he does, he gives us the ability to be obedient. He gives us the ability to, Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Absolutely. Here's where I'll end with this. Whenever I was in training, um, I never really had too much of a problem like doing what was asked of me. Right? I mean, there were certain things that I had trouble with, but at the end of the day, like, it's just, it's simple. Do what you're supposed to do, right? It wasn't until I actually started leading soldiers that I started realizing where I was coming up short. And uh, when I was in Iraq the second time, uh, my boss, a guy named Captain Valenzuela, Captain V, um, he said this, and I'm sure he didn't come up with it, but it's stuck with me ever since. He said this, you as a non-commissioned officer, as someone who leads soldiers, as someone who is a leader, you are responsible for everything your soldiers do and fail to do. That's what a leader is. And that stuck with me because it wasn't just a perfunctory type of thing, making sure they did what they were supposed to do, and I could, you know, sweep everything else under the rug when they failed. Like, no, no, that came up to me. I was their leader. I was responsible for what they did and failed to do. Can I tell you something? Jesus is the best leader I've ever met. The best leader I've ever encountered. You know why? It's not because he just gives us that perfect example to follow, Ephesians chapter 4. It's not that he does do that because he absolutely gives us the perfect example to follow, but also because he knows where we're going to fail. He said, I'll take responsibility for that too. Even with their failure, even with their sin, I want them. 
The rest of Matthew chapter 5, there's six examples of places where we get wrong, where we get fasting and prayer and marriage and all this stuff that we just mess up. And Jesus calls us to something greater, but at the same time, he's also pointing to the fact that he has done the very thing he's asking us to do perfectly. I said earlier that God never ultimately allows sin to go unpunished. And he doesn't. Your sin and my sin is exactly the very thing that Jesus bore on the cross. That is what leadership looks like when it comes to taking responsibility for some failure that is not your own. Whenever we fail to live up to our own resolutions at the beginning of the year, whenever that leads us into temptation and into sin or whatever that might be, Jesus still says, I still love you, I still forgive you, and I can give you something better. If your resolution this year does not mirror that in some way, get a better resolution. And I'd say that knowing that none of us are going to be perfect ultimately in this life, but what I'm saying is strive for it. Because it is God himself who starts a work. He's the one who completes it, not you. You work with God, right? Your effort and God's power leads to sanctification. And if your resolution and your time of year doesn't reflect on that and the cross of Christ, then your resolutions are going to be kind of garbage, just so you know, just like mine. So if you're thinking about that, let that land on you, and that can start today. It can start right now. So here in a minute, we're going to have music playing, and I'm going to lead us in a time of just response. But let me say it this way. For those of you who are Christians in here in this room and you're walking with the Lord, <clears throat> here's what I'm going to ask you to do. While this song is playing, I want you to stand up and sing like you actually mean it. Right? If Jesus has called us to something that is greater, this righteousness that is alien to us, and he has given us the ability to actually live that out, and you are finding success in that, then stand and worship him. Why would we not? That's what I want you to do. If you're a believer in Jesus in here this morning, and you recognize that you're not walking with him, that you're not fighting sin, that you are in fact trying to earn God's favor by doing X, Y, and Z, here's what I want you to do. I want you to not stand up and sing. I would rather you sit in your seat and pray to God, ask for forgiveness, repent of that, and then stand in worship whenever you're made right with him. I don't want anybody in here to feel like they got to stand and sing because some dude next to them is standing and singing. I want you to stand and sing out of conviction. Why are you standing and singing? If it's not because of the cross of Christ and because you have a relationship with the Father, because the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, then just sit. That'd be better off. Because I am after your joy and your sanctification just like Jesus is, and that's something that is vital for us. So there's two groups of people there, believers who are walking with the Lord and those who are not. But there's a third group in here possibly. And there are those who are still to this day trying to do whatever they can in their own power to make God love them. And you have not yet trusted in Jesus. And let me say this, stand and sing, don't stand and sing, it's not going to make a difference because the first thing you need to do is you need to trust Jesus today. Here's the gospel, clearly, plainly, simply. God is holy and you are not. That's a problem. Our sin causes a relationship to be broken between God and ourselves and praise God that Jesus has acted on our behalf. He has fulfilled the old covenant. He has ushered in something better and he extends love and forgiveness to you this morning. 
And that is great news, but it means nothing if you do not respond to that good news. We have to respond. For those of us who are in Christ, that response looks like worshiping or repenting. But for those of us who have not yet trusted Jesus, your day is today. What Paul says very clearly is that today is the day of salvation that God himself is making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Today's that day. If you have not trusted in Jesus, today is that day. I'm going to ask you to, if you feel if you feel led to stand and sing, let's stand and let's sing. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that we have an opportunity to be able to worship you, to be able to come and repent of this sin, or to be able to come and trust you in this moment. Father, I pray that you would have your way among us, and that God, you would be glorified by us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.